History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to the 266th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to a place that I visited when I was a kid a long time ago. I remember bits and pieces of it. Definitely want to visit it again in the future. This was suggested to us by Lloyd Durker, and I know a few others of you have thrown it out to me as well, and that is Colonial Williamsburg. There's a ton of history going on here, and that obviously lends itself to a lot of haunting. So we're going to talk about the various buildings that are here in Williamsburg and some of the ghosts that seem to be attached to them. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Chelsea, Tony with an I, Janet, Calum, Stacy with an EY, Haley, Tito, Leslie with an EY, Mindy, David, and PG and Minnie. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Noddity. Anna Haining Bates was a woman born in Canada who became famous because she was considered a giantess. She was 16 pounds at her birth in 1846 and grew to the height of 7 feet 11 inches. She eventually joined the sideshow circuit and met her husband, Martin Van Buren Bates. He himself was a tall man and stood 7 feet 9 inches. They traveled in circus troops together and separately. Eventually, Anna became pregnant and gave birth to an 18-pound baby girl. Fortunately, the baby died at birth. Anna became pregnant again while touring in the summer of 1878, and this baby grew to be even bigger, as if having an 18-pound baby was not enough. This baby was born on January 18, 1879, and Anna lost 6 gallons of fluid when her water broke. The baby was male, and he only survived 11 hours. That little baby boy made his imprint on the world, though, in the form of a Guinness World Record. He was the largest newborn ever recorded at 23 pounds, 9 ounces, and nearly 30 inches tall. His feet were 6 inches long. That record still stands today. His father wrote, He was 28 inches tall, weighed 22 pounds, and was perfect in every respect. He looked at birth like an ordinary child of six months. The baby is buried along with his parents at Mound Hill Cemetery in Seville, Ohio. A baby weighing nearly 23 pounds at birth sounds not only rather painful, but it certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now this month in history.
In the month of July on the 9th in 1941, the Enigma code was broken. The Enigma machine was Germany's most sophisticated coding machine. This machine was originally designed for use in business by Dutch inventor Hugo Koch, but the Germans adapted it to make an unbreakable code. The Enigma allowed an operator to type in a message that would be scrambled by three to five notched wheels that contained the alphabet. The receiver would need to know how the notched wheels had been placed to decipher the coded message. German code experts continued to make the machine more complicated. Parts of the code were broken by a group of British mathematicians and other problem solvers early on, but it wouldn't be until July that they achieved a true breakthrough. It is believed that this breaking of the code helped to shorten the war. Not only did the Allies manage to hide the fact that they had broken the code so that they could continue to decipher German war plans throughout the rest of the war, no one knew anything about it until 1974. Colonial Williamsburg is part of America's historic triangle. Today, it is a historic area that features a look back into the America of colonial times, just as the struggle for independence was sparking. Visitors can watch artisans ply trays from the past and visit dozens of historic buildings that have been restored to their 18th century charm. This is a place where one can walk in the footsteps of our founding fathers and experience the reality and uncertainty of the times that earlier Americans lived under, both free and slave. In any city with this much history, there's bound to be talk of a ghost or two. And there are many here with fascinating stories of pirates, poisonings, suicides, and war. We've got them all. This is going to be great. Many of the historic buildings have ghost stories attached to them. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of Colonial Williamsburg. One of the things that I really remember about visiting Colonial Williamsburg is watching all of these different people applying their trades. I didn't know how you made candles and bricks and how you did silversmithing and things like that from scratch. And I got to watch people doing that. It was just fascinating to me as a kid. But even more fascinating was the fact that the people who played these characters stayed in character. So when you would ask them questions about something that was more modern, they had no idea what you were talking about. A plane could be flying overhead and they didn't see it. You'd be like, but there's a plane up there. What do you make of that? I don't see anything. What are you talking about? What is this talk of planes? What are those? It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And one of my treasures that I got from there that I still have today is an old deck of cards, or at least it's printed as an old deck of cards appeared back in that time. Williamsburg was originally known as Middle Plantation. The settlement was founded in 1633, about halfway between the York and James Rivers. And of course, you've got the York and James River, so you know you've got Yorktown and Jamestown right here. And these are the triangle, that historic triangle, Williamsburg, Yorktown, and Jamestown. The town started to rise to prominence when Bruton Parish was built in 1683, and the College of William and Mary was chartered in 1693. This college is the second oldest college in the United States, right behind Harvard. So that's how far back some of this stuff dates. And I know our Europeans and listeners around the world hearing me talk about some of these places being really old. It's not very old, but for us it is. 
Francis Nicholson was lieutenant governor from 1698 to 1705, and he platted out the town of Williamsburg. He was experienced in this and that he'd helped design Annapolis. The principal access was a 99-foot-wide central avenue known as Duke of Gloucester Street. Homes were allotted a half acre, and most were built from wood and then painted white with either a gambrel roof, A-frame roof, or a hip roof. Each home had at least one chimney and shutters on the outside. Most of the public buildings were made from brick that was made locally. It was in 1698 that Williamsburg became the capital of Virginia when the state house in Jamestown burned. The city was officially incorporated in 1722. The ideas of freedom and revolution had a birthplace in Williamsburg. In Britain, the Stamp Act had been passed in March of 1765. And the reason why they had passed this act was we just had the French and Indian War and they needed a way to pay for it. This is fine. This is how a lot of governments manage to pay for these things, by taxing the people. The problem that we had here and the gripe that the people had, and one that I actually believe in, is that they were being taxed without representation. Virginians believed that only the Virginia General Assembly could tax them. That would be their local taxing authority. So how in the world is the government over in Britain taxing them? How can the king put a tax on them when they don't have anybody there to represent them? And so they were very angry that they were being taxed without this representation. And it wasn't just the Virginians. All of the colonies started to get very angry. So this Stamp Act is really what got the Revolutionary War fires started. There was this fiery orator named Patrick Henry, and he started giving these speeches all around these different towns, and one of them was Williamsburg. When older legislators accused him of treason after hearing him speak out against the king, he said, if this be treason, make the most of it. A crowd in Williamsburg forced the stamp collector to resign there after one of Henry's speeches. Virginia's Burgesses passed five resolutions condemning the Stamp Act. The seeds of revolution were fomented. Williamsburg would host parts of the Revolutionary War and was even occupied for a time by General Cornwallis of Britain. For those who don't know, the House of Burgesses was a legislative assembly that was set up in 1642, and this was based on a general assembly that had been set up in 1619. It was basically elected representatives, so it was very similar to what would later become our Congress. And this ran from 1642 to 1776. And then after 1776, it became the House of Delegates. So it's this time frame in which colonial Williamsburg seems to be frozen. This historic area stretches across 301 acres and features 88 original buildings that have been restored and many more that have been rebuilt, most of them on their original foundations trying to use some of the original plans. There are people here who are doing blacksmithing, candle making, brick making, you name it, they're doing it. Sewing, people are all dressed in period clothing, and they're keeping in character, as I described earlier. The buildings are wonderful to explore. Little did I know as a kid that many of these buildings harbored spirits. Wish I would have known then what I know now. Definitely have to visit again just for that reason. Let's venture through this historic place and see what ghost stories we may find. So the first place we should stop in any city, of course, are the taverns. 
you can't have a haunted historic town without having at least one haunted tavern, right? I mean, it seems like every time we've done a place, there's always a bar or a tavern that is among the mix of haunted places. Colonial Williamsburg has more than one. The first is the King's Arm Tavern. Some may not be aware, but during colonial times, a town could be fined if it did not have a tavern. Jane Vobe opened the original tavern that was here on February 6, 1772. She used slave labor to run the place, but was said to be a quote-unquote good master, if there was such a thing, who made sure her slaves got an education and were baptized. One of the first ordained black ministers was Gowen Pamphlet, and he had worked at the tavern for Jane. When he left that job, he became pastor at the First Baptist Church, which was founded by both enslaved and free blacks. They had originally had to meet in secret in the woods, but were given use of a carriage house on Nassau Street by a man who was moved by their prayers and singing. Both Washington and Jefferson stopped by the tavern on occasion. The King's Arm Tavern was very important during the Revolutionary War, as military folk and politicians gathered there to talk strategy. King's Arms Tavern is reputedly haunted by the ghost of a woman named Irma, who had worked and died at the tavern. She was killed in a bad fire that was ignited by a dropped candle. For this reason, when candles seem to go out on their own in the tavern, people credit Irma with doing it. She is said to be a friendly spirit. Tavern employees claim that she helps them out on occasion and that they regularly thank her for her help and wish her a good night every evening. Then we have the Raleigh Tavern. This is another reportedly haunted tavern, and it opened in 1717. The one that stands here today is not the original. That one burned to the ground in 1859 and was replaced by a couple of stores. They were demolished during the Restoration, and the Raleigh was built in its former footprint. Like the King's Arm, this was a tavern that saw a lot of action, but it also had a darker side. Slaves were auctioned on its steps, and there are rumors that the skull of Blackbeard was used as a punch bowl. Could it have been the secret society that met here in the Apollo Room that used the punch bowl? I think it was called Phi Beta Kappa. Painted above the mantel in the Apollo Room is the tavern's motto. Hilaritus, Sapientia, et bonae, vitae, proles, or something like that since I don't speak Latin, which means jollity, the offspring of wisdom and good living. The haunting that is reported here definitely seems to be residual, and it features a party atmosphere. People walking outside the darkened tavern at night claim to smell the distinct scent of tobacco smoke and to hear laughter and music playing from harpsichords. When people walk up to the windows, they see nothing inside. No light filters from a back room. The tavern is empty. The effort that was put forth here to restore this property is just amazing. Some of these buildings were just falling apart. And John D. Rockefeller Jr. and some other men got together. Uh, There was a gentleman by the last name of Goodwin. And they said, we have got to do something to save this place. And it was just a massive effort that they put forward. And it's just really neat what they've done here. One of the original buildings here, and I think it's the oldest, is the Bruton Parish Church. And it also has a cemetery. The Bruton Parish Church was part of the Church of England. The brick building was constructed in 1683. After the Boston Tea Party, worshipers gathered here for a day of fasting and prayer. Many colonial leaders, including Washington, worshipped at the church. The Revolutionary War was not the only war to touch Williamsburg. The Civil War did as well. And this church served as a hospital during the Civil War because, of course, the Battle of Williamsburg took place here. The cemetery that surrounds the church has graves from the 17th century through to the 20th century. And then there's one mass grave for around 100 Confederate soldiers. One of those buried here is Reverend 
Servant Jones. He's buried here with his first wife and his second wife. The Reverend's first wife died during childbirth. Before she passed, he proclaimed his undying love for her and that he could never love another woman. He asked her to wait for him in heaven. He left town for three months after her death and returned with her headstone and a new wife. While he was away, people reported seeing his wife's ghost walking around the cemetery and even sitting in a church pew. It was as if she was waiting for him like he'd asked her to. After the reverend's return, his wife's spirit seemed to turn angry and people would see her crying and wailing, obviously because he'd broken his promise. The church has a haunting as well that involves the church organ playing by itself and the curtains inside the church flutter and move without explanation as well. And nobody's sure if it's the wife that's causing those to happen or if we've got something else going on here as well. Another ghost story that's told about the church and cemetery involves two security guards. The story goes, late one night, two Colonial Williamsburg security guards were sitting in their patrol car and and saw a man walking up from the palace green along the road towards the church. He was described as a tall, shadowy figure dressed in a cardboard black suit with a vest. He had a strangely elongated neck, but what surprised them most was that he had red, glowing eyes. And there are people who believe that when you see a ghost with a strangely elongated neck, that it means that they were hanged. I have heard that in other places as well. As security was watching, they saw him duck behind this tree in the brick wall. They assumed that he must have used the tree to jump over the wall and entered the cemetery in search of him. When they entered the church cemetery, he had vanished. They looked all around but couldn't find him. They thought they heard the sound of the church door closing and believed the man somehow made his way inside the church. When they arrived at the main entrance, it was locked. Determined to catch this intruder, they unlocked the door and entered the church. As they allowed their eyes a chance to adjust to the dark, they heard a strange sound. It was described as being sort of a whoosh, thud, whoosh, thud. Once they turned on their flashlights, they could clearly see what was causing the noise. The hymnals were seen to levitate up from the church pews, fly across the room, and hit the wall. Needless to say, they decided to flee the church. And I don't blame them if I saw hymnals getting thrown around a church, especially since most of us assume that a church would not necessarily be a haunted place, right? We have a lot of houses here. Many of them have hauntings going on. The first one is the Ludwell Paradise House. This is a Georgian-styled brick house. It was built in 1755 for Philip Ludlow III. Ludlow owned the Green Spring Plantation in James City County. He traveled often to London, and he eventually died there in 1767. The house was then inherited by his daughter, Lucy. She was married to a man named John Paradise, and they lived in London, so they rented the house out. Paradise died in 1795, and he'd run up so much debt before that that he left Lucy destitute. She had to return to Williamsburg. Lucy had been a member of London's society elite, so she expected to be treated accordingly in Williamsburg. She was very eccentric, walking the streets like a member of royalty, greeting everyone. I could just see her swishing down the street and waving her hand at all of her quote-unquote subjects, which would have been her neighbors, probably looking at her like, are you nuts? One of the other things that made her eccentric was the fact that she bathed a lot. We're thinking colonial times, these people didn't take a whole lot of baths, but she sure did. People began to whisper that she was insane. And in 1812, they had her committed to the public hospital for persons of insane and disordered minds. What a name for a hospital, huh? She was locked away for two years, and then she committed suicide. The house is said to be haunted by the spirit of Lucy. One of the primary unexplained experiences is the sound of water either running, splashing, or dripping when no water's on. 
It sounds almost as though someone is taking a bath. Now, perhaps Lucy bathed so much because she suffered from something like OCD and maybe she washed her hands and arms incessantly. So that might be why we have the sounds with this type of haunting. Seems to me like it would be a little bit residual in nature, probably, particularly since she didn't actually die in the home. The Nicholson House was built sometime between 1751 to 1753. It was built on land owned by the famous planter and lawyer, Man Page. His son had sold the parcel of land when Page died in 1730. Cabinet maker James Spears was the first to take over the lot, but he later sold it to a tailor named Robert Nicholson, and that is who the house is named for. He made a good deal of money from his tailor business, which also operated as a post office and general store. The house Nicholson built was two stories with a fireplace and bedrooms on the first floor. He rented out some of the rooms, and one of the renters was violinist Cuthbert Ogle. It is his spirit that is said to haunt the home. People claim to have been touched on the shoulder or to hear scratching noises. And I'm not exactly sure why they think Ogle is the culprit, but it is said that he did die in the home, and maybe that's why. Next, we have the Wythe House, and this is spelled W-Y-T-H-E. It was built for George Wythe as a gift from his father-in-law. Wythe was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and served in the House of Burgesses. He knew everyone who was anyone and was said to have quite an influence on Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson always claimed that this was one of his mentors. He became the first professor of law at the College of William and Mary after the war. Wythe died in an unusual way. He died from poisoning. His grandnephew had been staying with him and was what we would call in our vernacular a deadbeat. He ran up huge debts and he decided that he would kill his uncle so that he could inherit the money. He was the sole heir. Unfortunately for the nephew, Wythe held on long enough to figure out what happened to him, and he rode his nephew out of the will. The only witness to the crime was Wythe's cook, a slave whom Wythe had freed. She couldn't testify since she was black, and so the nephew went unpunished. Another owner of the house was the Skipwith family, Anne and Sir Peyton. Anne got into a very public fight with Peyton at a ball being held at the governor's palace. She accused him of having an affair with her sister. She ran home and took her own life in the master bedroom. Visitors claimed to hear the sound of a woman in heels running up the stairs in the home. The apparition of a female in a ball gown has been seen as well. This is usually in the bedroom or near the stairs. The room where she died is said to occasionally have the scent of lavender, and the closet door opens and closes on its own. There are people who test the spirit here by walking up to the closet door and loudly proclaiming, Lady Skipwith, Lady Skipwith, I found your red shoe because apparently when she went out of the ball, she was in such a hurry and so distressed that when she climbed into her coach, she left a red shoe behind. The spirit of George Wythe is also said to haunt his former home for an obvious reason, since he was murdered and never received justice. It is said that he returns to visit each year on June 8th, the day of his death. Guests who have stayed in his former room have claimed to feel a firm and cold hand pressed down on their foreheads. The College of William and Mary is here in Colonial Williamsburg. Reverend Dr. James Blair set sail for England in May of 1691 to ask King William and Queen Mary to grant a charter for a college to be founded in Williamsburg. They granted the charter in 1693, and the college was named for them the College of William and Mary. The first building was constructed in 1695. One of the buildings that still remains a part of the college is the Wren Building. It was named for the famous London architect Sir Christopher Wren, and this naming was done in 1931. 
The building was designed by Thomas Hadley and is said to be the oldest college building still standing in America. The structure was here before the founding of Williamsburg. The many purposes it served included a school for Native Americans, and from 1700 to 1704, the Virginia General Assembly used the building while the state capitol was under construction. A fun fact about the building is that Thomas Jefferson was not a fan and wrote in his Notes on the State of Virginia that the wren was a, quote, rude, misshapen pile, which would be taken for a brick kiln. The genius of architecture seems to have shed its maledictions over this land, end quote. <laughs> Guess it's a really nice, wordy way to say this place sucks. The building suffered a series of fires and later served as a wartime hospital. It is for this reason that the building just may be haunted. Apparitions of soldiers have been seen roaming the hallways from both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. People are never able to get close enough to really check out their uniforms and get a feel for exactly who they are. Disembodied footsteps are heard echoing through the building. Sir Christopher Wren is said to haunt his namesake as well, though no one knows why. A spirit matching his description has been seen pacing the floors. But of course, he didn't die here. He didn't actually design the building for which he's named, so I'm not sure why he would be here. The spirit of a soldier said to patrol the third floor. The students who see him most frequently are those pulling all-nighters. So maybe it's a little bit too much of the Red Bull or some other drug that's helping to keep them awake. Ghostly legends are told on the campus as well. There's a bridge that's said to either reward or curse collegiate sweethearts. This bridge is behind the Crimdell, and if lovers kiss at its peak, it is said that they will marry and live happily ever after. But if they break up, a curse is placed on them that can only be lifted by one pushing the other off the bridge. A legend about the statue of Lord Bonatort, an 18th century Virginia colonial governor, claims that if it is touched, it will grant good grades to students. Wish I'd had one of those on my college campus. Another building on the campus is called the Brafferton, and it is the second oldest building on campus and was built in 1723 and is southeast of the Wren Building. This building was used for the instruction of some of the Native American boys, and they arrived here malnourished, and many became ill because they were malnourished, and they died here. Their spirits are said to be trapped in the building and are restless as they seek to escape. The boys were said not to be happy to have been brought here, and many would have liked to have escaped when they were alive. On foggy nights, ghostly boys are seen running through the sunken gardens. The Phi Beta Kappa Memorial Hall has a haunting that is reputedly of a girl who was going to be the lead in a play, but she died while visiting home. A new lead was chosen, and one night while she was practicing alone, she saw the dress she was supposed to wear for the show sitting upright in one of the audience's seats, as if someone had put on the dress and was sitting there watching her. Only she couldn't see the person. She could just see the dress. There's a ghost in St. George Tucker Hall as well, and this is said to belong to a girl who hanged herself in the third floor bathroom in the 1980s. It said that her ghost will visit students who are pulling all-nighters and ask them how their exams are going. If they answer that their exams are going well, she'll scream and throw a fit until the student leaves. I have a feeling that her exams must have been going badly. Maybe that's why she decided to commit suicide. I'm not sure. Maybe that's why she screams about people having their exams go well. Then we have the Hangman's Road and the public jail. Hangman's Road is a road that sets just off from Colonial Road and is exactly what its name indicates. A route from the public jail to the gallows. The jail was ordered by the General Assembly in 1701 and construction was completed on the brick structure in 1703. There was an exercise yard that was 20 square feet and the property was surrounded by a 10-foot wall. All sorts of people found themselves in the jail, not just criminals. Some were debtors, others were mentally ill. 
Punishment was harsh here and involved whipping or branding, and there were many executions. Some of these executions were of members of Blackbeard's crew. Fifteen of his men found themselves in the Williamsburg jail after Blackbeard had been captured and killed. Thirteen of them were hanged on the gallows, and their bodies left to rot in iron gibbets along the road. And for people who don't know, they used to do that a lot with pirates as a warning to other pirates not to do what they were doing. Another man held here was the lieutenant governor of Detroit, Henry Hamilton. He had paid Native Americans for the scalps of Americans. The spirits that haunt the jail reputedly include the family of Peter Pelham, who was a jailer here and lived in a section of the jail with his wife and children. People claim to hear conversations between two women and to see the ghostly image of a child playing. Haunting sounds are heard here as well that include slamming doors and creaking floorboards. Haunting experiences are had on the hangman's road as well that include the sound of old wagon wheels traveling down the street. And there are some other eerie sounds that have been reported. I wouldn't doubt that some of them are the sounds of a rope catching. That would be pretty creepy. Bassett Hall is one location here that is unique in that it is staged as it appeared in the 1930s when the most famous owners of the property, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his wife, lived there. So pretty much everything is from the 18th century except for this house. This is a two-story 18th century frame house. It's white with black shutters and surrounded by gardens. Philip Johnson, who was a member of the House of Burgesses, built the home between 1753 and 1766. The home was later purchased in 1800 by Burwell Bassett, for whom it's named, and he was Martha Washington's nephew. He was a member of the Virginia House of Delegates from 1787 to 1789 and served on the Virginia State Senate from 1794 to 1805. The property would function as a boarding house and tavern and exchange hands until the Rockefellers bought it in 1936. The Rockefellers had to do extensive restoration to the home, which was damaged by fire after lightning struck the structure. A little fun fact about Bassett Hall is that General Custer spent 10 days here after the Battle of Williamsburg to attend the wedding of a West Point buddy who was a Confederate named John Lee. Lee was engaged to the daughter of the owner of Bassett Hall at that time. So here you had a Union officer coming to the wedding of a Confederate officer, and they were both in the same house. The Battle of Williamsburg happened near the property, and that may be why it is rumored to be haunted. Tourists who visit the hall claim to hear disembodied voices, and some have felt cold spots that defy explanation. And as we know, that happened with so many of these battles during the Civil War. A lot of homes were used as field hospitals. I didn't see anything that actually said that was the case here, but I think we're safe to assume that there were probably soldiers brought into the home to be cared for after being wounded in battle. The Orell House is believed to have been built in the 1850s, but historians are unsure who initially owned the home that is today an inn that you can actually stay in. The house is two stories and built as an almost perfect cube by its dimensions. James Orell purchased the house in 1800, and the house is named for him. He lived there for about 20 years, and then it passed through several hands. The inn apparently has some ghostly chills in store for guests. One family had the following experience, according to Steve Erickson, who's the general manager of the Colonial House's historic lodging. A family was watching television in the living room when they heard water running upstairs. The father went up to investigate and found that a faucet had been turned on. He assumed one of the kids had left it on. So he goes downstairs, prepared to scold whomever had left it on, when he suddenly heard the water running again. The family had another fright when the father went to the bathroom. The drinking glass that had been in the medicine cabinet was now shattered across the floor, and he described it as if it had been thrown. 
The following morning, the bathroom was found strewn with toilet paper. So seems like we had some kind of a poltergeist going on here in the Orell house. And then finally, we have the Peyton Randolph house. This house was built by William Robertson in 1715 and then later purchased by John Randolph, who was considered the colony's most distinguished lawyer. He was even knighted for service to the crown. The home has been restored and is actually three buildings, two of which are connected to each other. An east wing is more like an outbuilding. The main center part of the house is two stories and burgundy-colored clapboard in style. There's a hall with a large round-headed window and a grand staircase that connects single rooms on each floor. When John died, he left the home to his wife and then his firstborn son, Peyton, for whom the home is named. Peyton went to law school and served as attorney general. He served in the House of Burgesses and was eventually elected Speaker of the House in 1766. Peyton had a brother named John, and the Revolutionary War would fracture the family. Peyton was a patriot, while John Jr. sided with the Crown. Leading revolutionaries from Virginia met at the Peyton Randolph House before going on to Philadelphia, so it had its place in history for the planning of the Revolution. A little fun fact is that the Randolph's cousin was Thomas Jefferson, and he inherited the library Peyton had built, and those added with his books were part of the founding of the Library of Congress. Peyton was said to be the quote-unquote father of his country before that title was given to George Washington. He died in 1775. The house was auctioned off after his wife's death. It's interesting to note that Peyton died in Philadelphia, and his body was pickled in a barrel for the trip back to Williamsburg. There seems to be several spirits in the home, and this home is said to be the most haunted in Williamsburg. One belongs to a young soldier who stayed here when a family named Peachy owned it. They owned the home in the 1820s. The soldier was staying at the house while he studied at the college, but he fell ill and eventually died in the home. People who visit the home claim to hear heavy booted feet wandering through the halls and to see the apparition of a young male. The Peaches housed French General of the American Revolution, Marquis de Lafayette, when he returned to Williamsburg in 1824. He claimed to experience something unexplained and wrote, I considered myself fortunate to lodge in the home of a great man, Peyton Randolph. Upon my arrival, as I entered through the foyer, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It nudged me as if intending to keep me from entering. I quickly turned, but found no one there. The nights were not restful as the sounds of voices kept me awake for most of my stay. So this is the Marquis de Lafayette having this experience. Gives it a little bit of credibility. One guest who stayed here in the 1960s said, quote, I was resting comfortable when awakened by the peculiar feeling that someone was tugging on my arm. Naturally, I assumed I was dreaming, so I rolled over and went back to sleep. A short while later, I was being shaken violently. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I could see that I was completely alone. I darted out of bed and ran as fast as I could. I didn't even go back to collect the things I'd left behind. There have been many claims through the years of violent shaking and tugging. Another spirit here is Our Lady in White. She is said to be an older, friendly woman who wears a white flowing gown. And a young girl who died in a fall down the stairs or out a window still seems to have her essence lingering here also. And the reason why I put that is we either have two young girls who died here, one in a fall down the stairs and one in a fall out a window, or it was this young girl and that's just two different stories told about her. And I wasn't sure which one was true. A security guard who was watching the house became trapped in the basement. He heard a terrifying growl behind him and felt something grab his legs and his feet felt as though they were firmly rooted to the floor. The shutter doors that he was going to exit out of slammed shut on their own and his flashlight turned off. He grabbed his radio and called his lieutenant for help. When the man arrived, he had to pry open the cellar doors. 
At that same moment, the security guard was released by whatever had been holding him. He quit the following day. I don't blame him. Other activity that's been reported are strange knocking sounds and furniture moving on its own. The Peachy family had a son die in the house, and the sound of children laughing when no children are present has been heard. The second floor is said to be the most haunted, and people claim that something has tried to push them down the stairs up there. An alarm once went off at the east wing of the house. Security couldn't find a key to the house, so they entered through a window. They thought perhaps there was a fire inside, but they found no smoke or flames. They did find a fire extinguisher resting in the middle of the floor, its contents completely emptied around it in what looked like a controlled circular pattern. They searched the house for intruders and found no one. They also never found the pin to the extinguisher. No residue was found underneath the fire extinguisher, nothing was on the bottom of it, and there were no footprints through the discharge spray. So if somebody had been spraying it in that circle, then set it down and walked away, I'm sure they would have left at least one or two footprints. Colonial Williamsburg is a must-stop for anybody visiting this area of Virginia. A chance to be immersed in the 18th century is hard to find. And for those of us that love the darker side of history, Williamsburg offers a lot of stories and what could be lots of haunts. Are these historic buildings in Colonial Williamsburg haunted? That is for you to decide. Definitely need to visit that again one day. Love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I want to thank Rick for sending his email. And he sent some pictures from a trip that he had when he was in Queensland. And a couple of those pictures featured the Murphy tomb, which is in the country town of Gatton. And this is a grave of two young women and their brother who were found murdered in a field that was near to this in late December 1898. Despite much speculation and theories over the years, no one really knows who did it or why. The Gatton mystery, as it's sometimes known, looms large in Australian criminal history. Can't imagine having these two young women and their brother. How devastating for their entire family. And then Rick said the last photo that he shared with me is actually from a couple years ago and taken in a graveyard in Melbourne. He was working as a courier and one day while work was slow, he decided to have a wander through the cemetery. He was walking along one of its roads with his two-way radio slung over his shoulder, and he spotted a rather ornate tomb with large marble columns. Obviously, someone had had a lot of money in life was not shy about showing it in death. As I leaned over its low wall to read the plaque inside, I heard a courier say over my radio, I've just picked up from Sims, and it's S-Y-M-E-S, which is a major publishing firm here, and I hope I said that right. It's either Sims or Symes. A moment later, I read the tomb plaque. David Sims, founder of Sims Publishers. As coincidences go, that was one of the more unsettling I've ever experienced. And I told Rick, well, you know what I think about coincidences? I don't believe in them. How bizarre to have that name come over your two-way radio and there you are looking at his tomb. What are the chances? Don't forget that we have Cemetery Bingo coming up here on August 11th. It's a Saturday. It's international. Everyone out there can participate with us. To get a hold of the four cemetery bingo cards, you can use any of them that you wish. You'll find those in the Spooktacular crew on Facebook. If you're not a member there, you can email me and I will send the cards out to you. We're playing Blackout Bingo, so you want to get as many of those symbols as possible. Whoever gets the most on that day will be receiving a Taffophile t-shirt, which you can find in the History Ghost Bump Emporium. 
And for those of you who are executive producers of the History Ghost Bump podcast at any level, from $1 to those of you who are giving $100 a month, if you participate in Cemetery Bingo, and that means you just go out and find even just one symbol, I will send you a three inch by three inch sticker of the History Ghost Bump logo. So just make sure you let me know that you participated and your mailing address, and I'll get that out to you after August 11th as a special thank you to you guys who are supporting the show. I greatly appreciate it. You really are what keeps the show going. Without you, I would not be able to do the output that I do. Have some Apple podcast reviews to share. Eddie Ainsworth, great podcast, five stars. This podcast is the best of both worlds. History mixed with paranormal. I just started listening to this podcast a few months ago, and I'm barely 46 episodes in, but so far it's turned out great. Seems to be getting better as I catch up to the latest episodes. I'll edit my review again when I catch up. We have a review from Australia. Yummy Mummy of three. Hi from down under, five stars. I love listening to you both. You guys make me giggle and make me want to join you on your road trips. Keep it up. I enjoy the way your podcast is set up and information delivery is fabulous. Well, thank you, yummy mummy. And from the UK, we have TS London. Always a good listen, five stars. A very entertaining show that keeps you gripped to the stories and gets you learning at the same time. Great combination. Thank you very much for those reviews. I want to thank all of you for joining me on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery Cheryl McReynolds, Andrea Kano, and Deb Blackburn. Cheryl and Andrea will both be receiving chest tombs, and Deb's going to be getting a fabulous garden crypt. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us as executive producers. I know this makes Mort very happy. I'm going to dance a little jig. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.